Gracious God, let these words be more than words, and give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. You may have read online or on our marquee outside, this week and next I'm preaching a short sermon series. Returning from vacation this last week, coming home to America in time for the celebrations of July 4, I've had some mixed feelings. Who doesn't have mixed feelings coming back from vacation? These feelings, though, are specific and to me a bit troubling. As a kid, I loved the 4th of July. The fireworks, the hot dogs, even flying the flag. As an adult, and especially this year, I feel the weight of responsibility that comes with citizenship in this republic. This year, more than most, I've marched. I've written letters, I've called my representatives and senators, and I don't see many immediate results. Honestly, I'm a little frustrated with the state of our nation. So today and next week, the Sundays surrounding July 4th, I have a series of questions for America. Two of them today. Before we get to the questions, let's take a look at the Bible. We've spent the last few weeks in church hearing the stories of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, the matriarchs and patriarch of our faith traditions. We've been reading the founding stories. And the beauty found in these stories is stunning. God takes Abraham out under the cloudless night and says to him, Look at the sky. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Sarah laughs when she hears God's plan that she will conceive in her old age. She's 90. Laughter is appropriate. (laughs) Holy. Sarah laughs, and at long last, Abraham and Sarah have a son. They name him Isaac. Laughter. The stories are beautiful, and if we're honest, the stories are problematic. Last week, we heard the story of Hagar, Abraham's mistress, who bore his first son, Ishmael. You see, Sarah and Hagar are rivals, and their sons grow up rivalrous. After seeing Ishmael taunt Isaac, Sarah wants the other woman and her child out. Hagar and Ishmael are left out in the desert to die. The story is painful, ugly. How could we believe in a God who would allow such inhumane treatment? These texts are problematic, and there's a great deal going on behind the scenes. Still, I'm struck by these stories, because just when I think, I can't believe in a God who would bless such behavior, the text turns. God shows up for the characters who were cast out. All this backstory is recalled ever so briefly in today's lesson. Speaking to Abraham, God calls Isaac your only son. Now, God should know better. (laughs) As we heard last week, God saved Ishmael in the end. Ishmael will also found a dynasty. Abraham will be the father of many nations. The founding story is beautiful and problematic. Today's text in particular, it's frightening, and it's a a pattern for salvation. We'll get deeper into the Bible in a bit. 
As I thought about the beauty and the problems of these founding stories of our faith, I find myself also asking about the beauty and the difficulty built into our national stories. When I lived in Washington, D.C., I used to love to visit the monuments on the National Mall at night. If you're traveling to Washington anytime soon, I can't recommend a nighttime visit to Jefferson and Lincoln more highly. You'll often have the whole place to yourself. And the way the Park Service lights the marble at night, it's nothing short of magic. Standing in his pseudo-Greek temple, looking out over the tidal basin, I loved rereading Jefferson's words, lit up against the dark night sky. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, the monument does its job. You can't help but contemplate the beauty of our founding story. The United States were built on the bedrock of equality. And yet, there in the text, we can hear the problematic element of our founding story as well. All men. As Angelical Schuyler sings in the musical Hamilton, when I meet Thomas Jefferson, I'm going to compel him to include women in the sequel. Knowing what we do about Jefferson also begs the question, how could the architects of freedom also perpetuate the enslavement of Africans? Our founding stories are both beautiful and problematic. Like Isaac and Ishmael, like Sarah and Hagar, our founding stories set up rivalries. In America, often these rivalries are based around racial identity. The author Toni Morrison has said, race is the fundamental metaphor necessary to understand the construction of Americanness. American has been defined historically as white. This was literally true at the beginning of our country. Enslaved African-Americans were only counted as three-fifths of a person by our Constitution. And they only counted in order to give their owners more power and representation. Latinx, Asian, and, Latin Amer and Native American communities have also had their personhood legislated. We have set up racial rivalries across American history. I entitled this sermon series, Questions for America. My first question is this, to whom does America belong? To whom does America belong? This morning we heard Jesus' words about welcome. Welcome the little ones. Christians believe in fundamental welcome. And we hear over and over again that this is a nation with Judeo-Christian values. But how often do we welcome the way Jesus would have us? How often do we see all Americans as Americans? How often are Asian Americans and Latin Americans asked, where are you from? And then, okay, but no, really, where are your people from? How often are black citizens denied basic protections for liberty and the pursuit of happiness, even life? Did you hear the story of Aaron Bailey, another unarmed black man shot by police officers, this time in Indianapolis last week? Yes, Aaron had a criminal record. 
But wasn't he more than his record? Did you know that Aaron was a regular volunteer at Christ Church Cathedral, the Episcopal Cathedral in Indianapolis? Did you know he was a regular guest at their Sunday breakfast? Who counts as American? Whose lives matter? To whom does America belong? There is a fundamental problem in our national story. Racism has been called America's original sin. I believe it's important to name it as such. But the story also has beauty. And the beauty has the capacity to overcome the sin. Over our 241 years, check my math, I think I've got it right. But over our 241 years of history, women and people of color have asserted their rights to citizenship. Historically, we've believed in equality, in freedom, and in their expansion. As a nation, we haven't believed freedom to be a finite resource. You don't need walls to protect freedom. Walls fence us in. Freedom grows when more people are free. The more free our neighbors are, the more free we are. Freedom grows exponentially. But if we start policing hard lines of belonging, if we say, you are American and you are not, it leads to some of the darkest moments in our history. My question about who counts sends me back to our story this morning of the binding of Isaac. Historically, the Jewish and Christian people have seen this scripture, this deeply problematic scripture, as a story of salvation. God spares Isaac. In the end, God does not demand the sacrifice. The irony for Christians is strong. In the end, God does not require the sacrifice of an only child. And yet, when God's only son came to us, we killed him. We demanded blood. That's another sermon. We've read this story as salvific historically. But for our readers today, it can still seem barbaric. I've never been able to fully embrace this story. And as I read it in preparation for today's sermon, it was the silence that stood out to me. Where is Abraham's protest? Why does he just quietly prepare to heed God's command to kill his son? For that matter, where is Sarah? She fiercely defended Isaac in last week's story. Where is she now? Where is her protest? Traditionally, even in the New Testament, Abraham and Sarah's silence is interpreted as a sign of their faith. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac, the book of Hebrews tells us. I'm not sure I buy this story. I want to know where the missing verses are. Where is Abraham's argument with God? Where is Sarah's persistence? Isn't that faith as well? And so it leads me to my second question. It's for today's text and for America. Can protest be prayer? For this question, as I'm sure you can tell from most of the questions I'm going to have in this series, I have a strong opinion. Yes. I believe protest can be prayer. As the ACLU bumper stickers proclaim, dissent is patriotic. 
Full disclosure, I borrowed the phrasing of my question from another preacher. Over vacation a couple weeks ago, Ellis and I had the opportunity to worship on a Sunday morning at the Riverside Church in New York City. Riverside is the tallest steeple in America, built to be an interdenominational, interracial, international, open, welcoming, and affirming church and congregation. That's a mouthful. It's beautiful, though. It's a huge cathedral of a place, full. We went for the architecture and to see one of the biggest, successful, most diverse churches in America. But we went especially to hear one of my homiletical heroes, the Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, give a sermon. Dr. Butler is an incredible preacher. I borrowed my question, can protest be prayer from Dr. Butler? In a sermon she preached the day after the Women's March, she marched down in Washington, D.C., Dr. Butler talked about what she realized as she joined the gathered crowd of pink hats that January day. Here are her words. Almost immediately after I merged from the metro station onto the sidewalk in downtown D.C., in that mass of people stretching as far as I could see, I began to feel something I haven't felt in some time. Hope. I didn't feel so alone or despairing anymore. I didn't feel that our community was in the minority in our calls for the church to speak up. And I started to believe again that change might actually be a possibility and that pushing back the darkness becomes a reality when all of us hold up our lights and raise our voices together. Sometimes being nasty is the same as being holy. And protest can be prayer. Those are wise words. I can't believe God required Abraham and Sarah's faithful silence. I think God answers the question, can protest be prayer, with a loud, resounding yes. God wants dialogue. God wants people to stand for justice. Faith isn't always quiet and polite. Faith can be nasty. Protest can be prayer. Tell Abraham and Sarah. Tell your neighbors. Tell your friends and cousins and all those people on social media. Are you feeling distressed? Stand up. Pray. Get out there on the streets. Ask yourself, am I praying for this country with my silence? Could I be praying with my feet? And on Tuesday, I dare you, celebrate. Remember the beauty of our founding stories. Remember the promise. All people are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Then ask yourself, to whom does America belong? Ask yourself, can protest be prayer? Then let's ask those questions together of our country. This 4th of July, let's ask some questions of America. Amen.